Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10. Tonight we're going to look at one of those interludes in the book of Revelation, one of those breaks in the action that is there by design, given to us by God. One of those chapters that reassures us. In fact, it's one of the most blessed chapters of the entire book, in my opinion. Uh, Remember, we had a first break like this in chapter 7 after we had seen the six seals opened. And the purpose of that break and the action was to assure the Christians that God is still in control and things may appear to be chaotic. The war, the famine, the death, the martyrdom, the great cosmic upheaval you remember we saw in in Revelation 6. But God is still in control. He is still on His throne. Uh, John is saying it may look bad, and it's even going to get worse. But you can be assured that God is going to protect His people. He will preserve them, and they have been purchased through the blood of Christ. So you remember that from our previous study. Well, in like manner, in chapter 10... We have another break in the action for the purpose of reassuring God's people that God is still in control, working according to His redemptive plan. And one thing we see in the book of Revelation, and we need to keep before us, is that it is a picture of God unfolding His redemptive plan for human history. This break in the action comes after the six trumpets of wrath have been sounded. You will remember those include hell and fire on the third of the earth. A great meteor falls from heaven into the sea, and a third of the sea turns to blood. Another meteor falls on the land, and a third of the springs are poisoned. The sun, the moon, and the stars are darkened. Then we see a demonic host appearing as locusts released from the abyss, and they torment non-Christians. And then we see a demonic host of 200 million strong released to kill a third of the world's population. After that has been revealed, God knows His people need some reassurance. And so what we have is the reassurance of God that though things may look rather hellish with these demonic forces, nevertheless, God's in control. He's carrying forth His master plan for man's redemption. Now, these words are also applicable to you and I today. If they're true for those who will be going through such hard times and tribulation as I've just mentioned, How much more are they true for you and I today to help us no matter what we find ourselves going through? No matter what hardship or difficulty 
we find ourselves in or adversity, you can be sure that the words of this chapter, the truth of this chapter, will be your peace and your comfort as they will be for those who are going through that tribulation time. Now, there are three things that we see in this chapter in Revelation. First, we see the Sovereign Lord. That's in verses 1 through 4. Next, we see the sworn oath in verses 5 through 7. And then thirdly, we see the sacred scroll in verses 8 through 11. Tonight, we'll be looking at the Sovereign Lord, verses 1 through 4. And I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud. And the rainbow was upon his head. And his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book which was opened. He placed his right foot on the sea, and his left on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. And when the seven peals of thunder had spoken... I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. I believe there is no better way to give the believer assurance in times of great adversity and difficulty and trial than to give them a revelation of Jesus Christ. The truth is, what you and I need more than anything is a vision of Jesus. If you and I can but see Jesus, our problems will shrink in comparison to His majesty. Whatever you're going through, if you can manage to get with God and see Jesus, He will minister what you need to your soul and spirit in that situation. It goes beyond human description. It's something you just have to experience to really understand it. And it seems that when we do see Jesus is when we're going through the fiery furnace. It was in the fiery furnace that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego met Jesus. It was in the fiery trial when the king looked in and what did he see? He said, I see a fourth one in there. And it looks like a son of God. And they were walking around, unbound, loosed. And when he came out, they didn't even smell like smoke. But they met Jesus in the furnace. And that's where we meet him, is in the difficulties, in the hard times. And we don't want hard times. And we do everything we can to keep from having hard times. But I want you to know, folks, that's where we see Jesus. We need to embrace the adversity because that's where you're going to really meet Jesus in a fresh, deep way. You see, it doesn't matter when in history a person lives, nor how difficult and perilous the times, they can have perfect peace when they see the sovereign Lord Jesus. Isaiah lived in some difficult times. King Uzziah had just died. 
the people were rebellious and apostate. They lived in the danger of invading armies. And it was in this condition that Isaiah said, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and exalted. And Isaiah never forgot it. He was never the same after seeing Jesus. And let me tell you, you'll never be the same either. When you see Jesus, it transforms you. It moves you. It changes you in the deepest parts of your being. Ezekiel, he lived in difficult times. The Babylonian exile was at hand and he saw the future fall of Jerusalem, the blessed city. And in this harsh time, he also saw the sovereign Lord. In chapter 1 of Ezekiel, he says, And I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward something like glowing metal. And there was a radiance around him. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. This experience is repeated throughout the Bible. When God's people are going through excruciating circumstances, that God's answer is not to take them out of the circumstances, but to show them Himself. To give them a revelation of who He is. When Stephen was being stoned in Acts 7, what did he see? You remember? Hallelujah. Being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So it is with these saints, and so it is with the saints of history. In their suffering, even in their death, John says, Behold your sovereign Lord Jesus. The theme of this chapter is see Jesus. See Jesus. Now, John gives us a description of the Lord Jesus in these verses. First, we're going to see His majestic glory and mercy. John says, I saw another strong angel, and you might say, well, preacher, it says an angel. Why do you say it's Jesus? We know angel, and it's Literal meaning is simply messenger. That's all. Uh, John the Baptist is called a messenger of God. Uh, it's translated messenger because we think of angels, we think of uh, the uh, the spirit beings. Uh, but it's the same word. Uh, so I think we're looking at the Lord Jesus here, and I'm going to tell you why. The first being because he's clothed with a cloud. Clothed with a cloud. Now, what does the cloud remind you of? And you think back over your study of Scripture, particularly the Old Testament. What cloud comes to mind? The Shekinah glory cloud. Amen. I think you're right on target there, Homer. The Shekinah glory cloud. You remember when Moses went up on Mount Sinai to meet with God, the glory of the Lord covered the mountain as a cloud. 
over in Exodus chapter 24, in verses 13 through 16, we read these words about Moses going up. So Moses arose with Joshua his servant, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. But to the elders he said, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Ur are with you. Whoever has a legal matter, let him approach them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses from the midst of of the cloud. So when it says that he is clothed with a cloud, I think that's John's way of saying this is no mere angel. This is the angel of the Lord, none other than the Lord Jesus. In verse 17, it says, In the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. And Moses entered the midst of the cloud, and he went up to the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. <coughs> also, in Exodus chapter 40, you remember he received detailed instructions on how to build the tabernacle. And so he followed out those instructions, and you remember what happened when the tabernacle was completed, when it was finished? What happened, Fred? Amen. As we read in Exodus 40, 34, then thus Moses finished the work, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because of the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, in verse 38, we see that this cloud was a constant reminder of God's presence with them. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was a fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. Now, they knew God was with them. All they had to do was look at that cloud. That was a symbol, that was a constant reminder that the Lord was ever present with them. And the scripture tells us in Hebrews 13, 5, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He is always with us. You say, but we don't have a cloud. No, we got something better. We got the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And so he's with us, ever present. And so John is saying, look, when you're going through hard times, folks, when you're going through these adversities and difficulties, remember... The one who's clothed in a cloud, the ever-present Lord, is with you. And then he says he has a rainbow upon his head. He has a rainbow upon his head. Now where did you see a rainbow previously in our study of Revelation? You remember? At the flood... 
in the Old Testament. Remember in Revelation we saw a rainbow. It was an emerald rainbow. You remember where that was? Around the throne, right? And again, I think that's John's way of saying this is divinity. This is God we're talking about here. There's a rainbow upon His head. And remember in the Old Testament, the rainbow was a symbol of what? God's faithfulness, His promise. It was His covenant symbol. He cut a covenant with Noah and said He would never again destroy the earth with a flood. He said as long as there is the earth, there will be night and day and there will be winter and spring and fall uh, and summer. There will be the seasons. And that's His covenant promise. And He said a symbol of this, a sign of this promise, I'll put a rainbow in the sky. And so we see in this, John's reminding us that He is a God of faithfulness. He is a God of mercy. It's mercy that God doesn't destroy the world. We deserve it. We're just as wicked as they were in the days of Noah. Wouldn't you say so, Mark? Oh, no question about it. Sin's even had longer to run its course in depravity. And so it's mercy that God doesn't destroy us tonight. So... The truth of God's faithfulness, the truth of God's presence, the truth that God is ever present, these are truths that God's people need to keep in their forefront of their mind when they're going through hard times, when they're going through adversity, when they're going through difficulty. God will help you. He will be with you. He will be faithful to keep His promises to you. That's God's word to these tribulation saints. It's God's word to you and me. Thirdly, He's described His face like the sun. Here we see the greatness, the greatness of our God. In chapter 1, John saw a vision of the glorified Lord. And there he says, his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Then he speaks of the majestic glory of God. And so it is now that we are seeing John referring to the majestic glory of the Lord Jesus as he speaks of him with his face like the sun. Would you not agree the most majestic and powerful thing that you and I know of on this physical plane is the sun? I mean, it it is billions of nuclear explosions going on all at once. Its temperature is just beyond anything we can imagine. It sends the light that we need. I mean, it is... When you speak of the physical world, the sun, as far as we know, is, is, is tops. It is the most majestic thing that you and I experience. You say, oh, but what about the stars way out there? Well, you know, we don't really experience those, do we? A little bit of dots. But now the sun, no man can look at it and not go blind. I mean, that's how powerful it is. And so when he wants to speak of the majesty the greatness of Jesus, he uses the sun. His face like the sun. 
It's interesting to me when I talk to people and, and they talk about seeing Jesus in a dream. I always like to ask them, what did he look like? And when they say, well, you know, I didn't see his face. It was just, it was just bright. Then I like to pay attention to that. Now, if I get a good look at his face, I kind of always wonder about that. You know, Scripture does it gives us that description. It's that bright light, his greatness, his majesty. So when we see how great he is, then what does that do to our problems? They shrink. They don't go away. They're still there, but man, they don't seem nearly as overwhelming when you see how great the problem solver is, do they? And then he talks about his feet as pillars of fire. Now, where did you just see me mention pillars of fire? Just a few moments ago. Where was it? In Exodus. Yeah, the cloud by day, and what was it at night? It was a pillar of fire by night. And what did that cloud do for them? You know, if you look at the passage over in, in Psalms, and I'm not going to get a chance to, to look at it with you right now, but the indication in Psalms is that this cloud covered the whole nation. Three plus million people, this cloud covered them. And you know what it did? It was a built-in air conditioner. It kept them cool during the daytime and Clouds keep in warmth at night. And so they had air conditioning 24-7 complements of their great God. And so they had the fire at night. They had the cloud during the day. And it followed them. It went, in fact, it led them and showed them where to go. And when the cloud didn't move, they didn't move. Might be a week, might be two weeks, might be a month. But if the cloud didn't move, they stayed right there. But when the cloud moved, they packed up and they went to. The cloud directed them. In Exodus 13, verse 21, And the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and in the pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. And not only did they have built-in air conditioning, they had built-in illumination. They had built-in lights, and they didn't have to worry about paying an electricity bill. <laughs> they had it, didn't they? He led them as they went. And no matter what happened, they knew the cloud was assuring them of His presence, and He was using it to direct them. And when John sees the Sovereign Lord... He sees him covering and protecting his people as he's clothed in the cloud and has feet as pillars of fire. And in your trial, in your adversity, he will direct you. He will lead you just as surely as he led Israel. But you know what you and I do, don't you? We get in that crucible. We don't like the pressure. So we start trying to figure out how to get out of it. And we don't follow God's leading. We follow our own leading. And we end up in worse shape than we were to start off with. Now, we've all had that happen, haven't we? We get frantic. I just got to get out. I can't stand this anymore. I got to get out. I'm just going to quit. Rather than taking time to seek the Lord and say, Lord, what, what's your direction here? What would you have me to do? 
People in trials just need to see the glory of the sovereign Lord. Lord, let me see Jesus. Let me see His glory. Now we move to the saving power of the sovereign Lord. First of all, we saw His majestic glory and mercy. Now we shall see His saving power in verse 2. And in his hand, a little book, which was opened. Now, we saw a book earlier, you remember? Or a scroll. You remember? Who had that book in their hand? You remember? God had it. You remember? And the question was put to John, who can open the seals of this book? You remember? And we said that book was mankind's forfeited inheritance. You remember that? Forfeited our eternal life. Forfeited our physical life. When Adam sinned, he forfeited that. You remember? And no one is found capable, able, qualified to be the kinsman redeemer. And open the book. You remember? John just starts wailing because he knows if nobody can be found, that mankind is forever doomed and lost. But then an angel says, wait a minute, John. There's one. And he turns and sees the Lamb of God. You remember? And the Lamb comes up and takes the scroll. And when he takes it, all heaven breaks out in one hallelujah shouting time. You remember that? We saw that. They all got in on it. Because they know that means Jesus has the power to redeem his people. And he has. Their lost inheritance. And I believe, and if scholars disagree on this, there's difference of opinions, but I happen to agree with W.A. Criswell. I think this book is none other than that sealed scroll that we saw in the hand of God in chapter 5 that Jesus took, that forfeited inheritance that Jesus took, that eternal life that was forfeited, that physical life that was forfeited, that Earth's dominion over the earth that was forfeited. But he's the only one found worthy to be the kinsman redeemer. And now he has that book in his hand and it is opened. Opened. That's symbolic that God is completing his plan of redemption. Because you remember this book contained the seven seals. And they were opened up. The seventh seal contains the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet contains the six vials or bowls. And so it all starts with this book, which is God's redemptive plan for His people. All that we have seen and all that you will see, all that transpires in your life is a plan that a sovereign God has for you. Working out your spiritual growth into Christ's likeness. You're so familiar with Romans 8. God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. And this book shows the saving power of the Lord Jesus. The basis of the redemption is the cross. The payment that Jesus made Now, we are saved, but there's also a future aspect to our redemption. 
Remember? Even the world is groaning now, waiting for the day of its final redemption. Romans 8 tells us that. And you and I know that our salvation is not complete. You know, there's a future tense to our salvation, Fred. And that's going to be the day we're going to be raised up out of that grave, brother. And we're going to be glorified. And our spirit's going to be joined once again to this old body. But it's not going to be this old body then. It's going to be glorified after the very glory of Jesus. And that's called in Scripture our glorification. Now that's going to bring the fullness of our redemption into sway. And I think what John wants to assure us, when you see the the scroll in the hand of this angel, in the hand of Jesus, is that he has the power to carry forth God's redemptive plan, and he will do it. He'll do it in your life. He'll do it for the church, his bride. So John shows us the sovereign Lord holding this redemption book, our redeemed inheritance signifying His unique saving power. You see, Jesus is the only person who'd ever lived that could reverse the curse. It came because of man's sin. In His earthly life, He demonstrated over and over again that He came to undo what Adam had done. His miracles were a living illustration of His unique saving power. They were a picture of the coming millennial kingdom. That he would restore world dominion. He expressed his dominion over the world when he calmed the seas. When he walked on the water. When he turned the water into wine. These were revelations of his power to restore creation. His power to do away with the effects of sin, which are sickness and death, are seen in his healing miracles. When he raised people from the dead. His power to restore spiritual life and defeat Satan is seen in, again, His healing of people who who were sick because of, of spiritual forces, the exorcisms that He accomplished. The healing of the paralytic shows that He can restore spiritual life. He alone can save us. He alone can keep you saved. Thirdly, we see His kingly rule, again in verse 2. And he placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. Now see the picture. Here we have this mighty angel holding this scroll. And one foot's on the land and one foot's on the sea. And the Old Testament, when you put your foot on something, it was a sign that you owned it. You remember God told uh, Joshua, he said, Go in every place your foot treads, I have given it to you. It shall be yours. Deuteronomy 11.24 As Israel was preparing to enter the promised land, God told them if they would be obedient and faithful. He said, Every place on which the sole of your foot shall tread shall be yours. And again, he said the same thing to Joshua in chapter 1, verse 3. So when John sees Jesus standing with the soles of his feet on the land and sea, he's saying that the sovereign Lord is possessor and king of of all creation. All is His, created by Him and for Him. And because of His obedience, even to the point of death, God has highly exalted Him and given Him a name which is above every name. He is the Lord of those lording and the King of those kinging. It's literally what the Greek means. 
Lord of lords and King of kings. God says, no matter how awful things on earth may seem, I am still the possessor and king. No matter how bad things in your situation might get, no matter how hopeless they might appear, He says to you, I am the sovereign Lord, King, and I am on my throne. Behold the Lord Jesus. And then lastly, we see His supreme sufficiency in verses 3 and 4. John hears seven peals of thunder. He's about to write it down, what it has revealed, and he's told to stop, not to write it down. No one knows what they mean. Now, why did the Holy Spirit lead John to mention them? If he wasn't going to write down what they meant, why even mention them? I think there's a deep lesson here. That lesson is our comfort. Our assurance in our times of difficulty does not come from us understanding the why or the how or having more knowledge of the situation. It comes from beholding the Lord and trusting Him. See, we think, man, if I could just understand why, if I could just know what's going on, I could get my mind around it, my head around it, and I could have peace. No, that's an illusion. Your peace is going to come from knowing the Lord Jesus and seeing Him. That's what God kept telling Job throughout this whole book. Job kept saying, why God, why? Help me understand. Let me know what's going on. Talk to me. Tell me. And you know what God kept saying? Look at me, Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkness that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you will instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have any understanding. And he goes on. Again, in chapter 40, verses 1 through 5, the same thing. God just says, look at me, Job. I'm all you need to know. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault find to contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, I will not answer. Even twice, I will add nothing more. And then in chapter 42, and the Lord, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here now I will speak. I will ask you and you will instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eyes see you. After all was said and done. All the moaning and groaning and trying to figure out what was going on, he ended up by realizing his way of peace was not understanding, not having more knowledge, but it was trusting God. It's believing and holding on to the promises of God 
and the person of God that will carry you through your hard time. That's where your peace is going to be. Don't try to understand it. You probably never will. You don't need to understand it. You just need to hold on to God. You need to see Jesus. Trust Him. He is totally sufficient. He is there. That concludes our study for tonight. And our time is up and past, so you may want to go pick up your young ones.